0: Welcome back to the History of Health. I'm Connor Sexton, and this week we're going to discuss whether or not Queen Victoria deserves credit for making chloroform acceptable among the general public. Then we're going to set the stage for the third cholera pandemic by taking a look at a guy named Edwin Chadwick. Yeah, he's about as nice as his name makes him sound. This episode is massive in terms of importance, if not length, and we're going to cover some extremely serious topics. So buckle up. Now, first, I need to ask everyone to like and subscribe to the History of Health on whatever podcast app you use, and leave a nice review if you like what I do here. It really helps grow the podcast, and I really appreciate it. If you want to go a step further, go ahead and tell a friend about it. Word of mouth is the number one way for podcasts to grow. Another way you can support the podcast is by signing up to make a monthly contribution through Patreon at patreon.com historyofhealth. I write, record, and produce this series by myself, and you Patreon supporters really help keep me going. Thank you so much to everyone who's already signed up, and now on with the show. This episode is brought to you by Breakfast. Eating a healthy breakfast has lots of amazing health benefits. It improves your energy levels and ability to concentrate in the short term and can help with better weight management, reduce risks of type 2 diabetes, and heart disease in the long term. While skipping breakfast may seem like a good way to reduce your overall energy intake, research actually shows that even with the higher intake of energy, breakfast eaters tend to be more physically active in the morning than those who don't eat until later in the day. So if you're looking to improve your overall health, Start the day with whole grain cereal, fruits and nuts, or maybe a nice egg sandwich on sourdough, and try to stay away from too many added sugars and processed foods. Your brain and belly will thank you later. Now we're starting today by finishing our discussion on chloroform, and if its general acceptance was jump-started by Queen Victoria's use of it during the birth of her eighth child. She also did it for a ninth, I think. But anyway, first... I need to take a second to give credit to my main source of information for this series. It comes from a book called Cholera, Chloroform, and the Science of Medicine, written by, and forgive me if I butcher any of these names, Peter Vinton Johansson, Howard Brody, Nigel Paneth, Stephen Rockman, and Michael Ripp. If any of y'all want to take a deep dive yourselves, it's a wonderful book, full of information, and it's the most comprehensive study of Jon Snow's life that I've found. If you'd like any of the other sources or have any questions about the show, please email me at historyofhealth@gmail.com. at gmail.com. So we ended our last episode talking about Jon Snow administering chloroform to the Queen of England. This was a big deal. For a kid from York to be allowed to administer a drug to the queen that everyone knew could be deadly shows just how highly respected John was as a physician. So was the queen's use of chloroform the tipping point which gained it wide acceptance among the public? The short answer, probs not. In a paper written for Anesthesia, the Journal of the Association of Anesthetists out of the UK, authors H Connor and T Connor, no relation to the Connor now speaking, will they examine the issue. They conducted a thorough review of pretty much everything printed on the topic and found that the idea of Queen Vicky settling the debate surrounding chloroform didn't even begin to be put forward publicly until many years later people writing in the 1950s and 60s said things like it was the acceptance by the queen herself that changed the minds of the opponents and it was queen victoria who finally settled the ethics of the question and my favorite it was fitting that the battle royale should be won for simpson by the queen herself i see these as gross oversimplifications of the issue While it would be convenient to be able to attribute an historical process like the uptake of a new drug by a population to the influence of one person, things may not be that simple. Now, at the time of the birth, that is in 1853, it wasn't actually widely known that she had used chloroform. Its first mention came from the Association Medical Journal, so not something super widely read by the public, but apparently, the royal physician, Sir James Clark leaked the queen's use of the drug to its main proponent, Professor Simpson. He, in turn, passed that information on to the journal. Now, in Sir James Clark's letter to Simpson, where he described the events, he said that he had little doubt it would lead to a more general use of chloroform in midwifery practice. So the royal physician thought it would have an effect on the adoption of chloroform use in childbirth, but there's evidence that well before the queen used chloroform, It was already being used by many women, especially younger ones. Of the nine papers studied by the Connors, seven didn't even mention the event. The Times and the Morning Chronicle, the two major London daily newspapers, didn't carry any coverage of it at the time. The initial report by the Association Medical Journal only generated one letter indicating its publish had any effect. A doctor detailed a case in which a very devout woman, who had previously not accepted chloroform for religious reasons, changed her mind when she heard the queen, who was, after all, the head of the Church of England, had used it. So there is evidence that the queen's use had some effect, but to give her full credit for settling the debate is lazy and oversimplifies a complicated issue. In my opinion, the drug's ease of use and practical effect of relieving pain during the excruciating process of childbirth deserve far more credit than the queen mother. Now, before we drop this discussion, I want to point out an interesting little tidbit. Dr. Snow apparently used a handkerchief to apply chloroform to the queen. As we discussed last episode, he had publicly denounced this practice and blamed the death of little Hannah Greener on its use. I can only speculate that the queen refused to have the royal head encumbered by the inhaler that John normally used, as it would have made for a rather undignified image. This is a rare case of the usually stubborn Snow being willing to compromise his position. However, when it comes to the main topic of our episode, that is cholera, Snow will be as uncompromising as ever. He will stake out a position that seemed ludicrous to some people at the time, but he'll stick to his guns. He will defy the government, especially one member named Edwin Chadwick, whom we will discuss later. John Snow first encountered cholera when he was sent as an unsupervised assistant to the coal mining village of Killingworth in 1831. By the time the 1848 epidemic hit London, he already had some definite ideas about how the disease operated. The London press anxiously announced its progress from Russia through Western Europe throughout the summer of 1848. But as late as October 21st, the president of the Westminster Medical Society, of which John was a member, was pointing attention away from cholera Toward other endemic diseases in London, such as influenza and scarlet fever. Now, while those diseases did kill thousands every year, it's difficult to overstate how wrong he was in his assessment of risk at the time. Cholera was a different beast. Over 15,000 people died of cholera in Mecca in 1846. Between 1847 and 1851, more than 1 million Russians lost their lives to the disease. In Ireland... Injury was added to injury as they suffered through the potato famine. In 1849, an estimated 30,000 people who survived starvation were then struck down by cholera. In the 1840s and 50s, outbreaks of the disease occurred in the United States, Mexico, Spain, Vietnam, the Philippines, Iran, Iraq, Venezuela, Brazil, Tunisia, China, and Japan. The disease that was first released from its native India by British invaders had now become globe-spanning. As it had done in 1831, cholera reached the British Isles, and by 1849, about 53,000 deaths from cholera had been recorded in England and Wales. London experienced the worst outbreak in the city's history. Cholera claimed over 14,000 lives, which was over twice as many as occurred in 1831-32. The London of that time along with many large cities and industrial centers, had a distinct reputation for its uncleanliness. It was known as the Venice of Drains and the Big Smoke. The poet Percy Shelley in 1839 said, Hell is a city much like London. The reasons for London's likeness to the netherworld were various. For one, the city's population more than doubled between 1800 and 1850. This growth in population was catalyzed by government policies like the Enclosure Acts which enclosed formerly communal land, and turned it into private property, stripping many of the ability to live off the land and thus forcing them into cities. Rapid and unplanned industrial growth also led to massive pollution. Furthermore, London supported massive inequality. The social structure was highly divided and rigid, with a wealthy upper class living in luxurious homes in the West End and a working class population living in cramped and unsanitary conditions in the East End Poor people in places like East London died at an average of 29 years less than their wealthy fellow citizens. Sorry, subjects, because monarchy. And to top it off, the British government's laissez-faire philosophy meant that legislation to solve or even curb these problems was out of the question. Into that vacuum stepped opportunists with access to capital. To maximize profits, unqualified builders were paid to rapidly construct back-to-back terraces, these structures were bricked in on three sides, lacked basic utilities like clean water and sewers, and were erected more as machines to manufacture rent than as dwelling places for human beings. The state of affairs, a teeming population living in crowded and unsanitary conditions, was perfectly suited for contagious diseases such as cholera. While no one had anything like definitive proof as to the cause of this ravenous disease, there were different camps or schools of thought. The topic was hotly debated, with over 700 works produced in London alone between 1845 and 1856. An editorial appearing in The Lancet in 1853 described the situation with some classic Victorian flourishes. Quote, The question, what is cholera, is left unsolved. Concerning this, the fundamental point, all is darkness and confusion, vague theory and vain speculation. Is it a fungus? An insect? A miasma? an electrical disturbance, a deficiency of ozone, a morbid off-scouring of the intestinal canal, we know nothing, we are at sea in a whirlpool of conjecture, End quote. While the writer may have been a bit hyperbolic, he wasn't too far off. There were lots of ideas about cholera, but very little in the way of anything concrete. The two main ways of viewing cholera at the time are generally broken down into the miasmatists and the contagionists. Miasmatists believed that diseases were spread through the air, whereas contagionists believed physical contact was required, or that you at least had to be near the person. But there's some further distinctions to be made here. There were different kinds of each. Some miasmatists believed in a general epidemic constitution that would visit upon a locale. These folks, who were furthest from the mark, had a kind of death-is-in-the-air theory. Then there were local miasmatists, who thought that local sites of filth, like undrained sewage water or heaps of rotten garbage, generated airborne vapors that caused diseases like cholera. One of the leading lights of local miasma thinking was Edwin Chadwick. And here we're going to take a little Chadwick tangent, because he's a pretty important historical figure, and he's going to come back in our story again. He was not a medical man, but a barrister, or a lawyer, who was a disciple of the utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham. The utilitarians believed in doing the most good for the most people, which sounds great, but can lead down some pretty dark roads, which we will see. Chadwick was the son of a liberal politician. His father taught botany and music to John Dalton, who would later introduce the world to atomic theory, and his grandfather was apparently friendly with the then-famous Methodist theologian John Wesley. Chadwick became a commissioner with the Royal Commission on Conditions and Factories, which recommended that children should not be employed unless they had a certificate to say that they were receiving three hours education a day. This horrified the House of Lords, which thought that it might give the working classes ideas about universal education. Can you imagine? He was a shrewd bureaucrat, but impatient, judgmental, and pompous. He seems to me like a person so convinced of their own correctness that they view all opposition as not just wrong-headed, but evil. He once actually said to a parliamentary committee, quote, All smell is disease, end quote. He campaigned for reform of the conditions of working people in England, but did so on the basis that the lower orders would be of more use to the national machine if they were healthy, prudent, and industrious. This orientation toward the non-wealthy in society led to paternalistic and sometimes brutal aspects to his reforms. After being appointed to the Poor Law Commission, he and a... Nassau William Sr. wrote a report which became the basis for the poor law reforms that took place in 1834. Many in the middle and upper classes felt they were paying too much to help the poor. To remedy to this, Chadwick and Nassau designed a system based on the idea of less eligibility. This meant making less people eligible for relief and making the conditions of those who did receive relief as miserable as possible. And they didn't just construct this system out of nothing. It shouldn't be surprising. But England actually has a long history of criminalizing poverty, going back to the 1300s. As late as the 1500s, punishments included branding the face of able-bodied beggars, and even execution. By the time Chadwick and Nassau came around, the idea of using violence to discourage being poor was well ingrained in the English psyche. So the process for applying for aid was made to be grueling and humiliating. And if you made it through that process, you were either given what was called outdoor relief which meant that you got to remain in your home while you received assistance, or you were given a ticket of admission to a workhouse. A quote from the poor law commissioners themselves gives you an idea of how they viewed workhouses. Quote, into such a house, none will enter voluntarily. Work, confinement, and discipline will deter the indolent and vicious, and nothing but extreme necessity will induce any to accept the comfort which must be obtained by the surrender of their free agency, and the sacrifice of their accustomed habits and gratifications." Chadwick couldn't fathom the possibility that economic circumstance or environment had anything to do with people's choice of behaviors that affect their health. He was a moralist, and believed that unsanitary living was the ultimate outcome of moral failing. Hence, his reforms were merciless, and treated poor people like children in need of a stern lesson in moral living. His idea was to incentivize poor people to take any job possible, no matter how low-paying. Conditions in the workhouses were intentionally harsh. Sleeping quarters were cramped and dirty, baths were supervised, and medical care was substandard even for the time. Families were separated, women were kept in one area, children in another, and men in yet another. They were generally allowed to see each other only for brief visits once a day or on Sundays. The inhumanity instituted by the new law met with stiff resistance and resulted in Chadwick becoming the most hated man in England. Workers hated it, religious leaders came out against it, and even politicians began to criticize it. Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist was actually written to popularize the plight of those affected by the new poor law. The harshest measures were eventually repealed because of such immense opposition. One might be led to think that they just might not have known any better at the time. I assumed ignorance was to blame. But then I came across someone named Louis-René Villermé. Excuse the pronunciation... Among other things, he was an army surgeon, author, and social economist, and along with John Snow, is considered one of the founders of epidemiology. While Chadwick and his ilk thought that low moral fiber was to blame for the increased rates of disease among the poor, Villermé and other researchers in Paris verified a correlation between poverty, poor health, and high rates of mortality. But Chadwick wasn't interested in alleviating poverty. He wanted to repress vagrancy. It wasn't about helping poor people. It was about disciplining them. But he didn't let his failure with the Poor Law stop him. He continued his work with the Poor Law Commission, turning his focus instead to public health. A massive typhus outbreak occurred in 1838, and after convincing the Poor Law Board to commission two of his medical friends to investigate the outbreak, he began accumulating information himself. He sent questionnaires to every Poor Law union in the country and talked to surveyors, builders, prison governors, police officers, and factory inspectors to obtain additional data about the lives of the poor. I'm not sure why he didn't just ask poor people about their lives, but at least he was interested. All of the information he received was edited and organized and resulted in his report on the sanitary condition of the laboring population of Great Britain. Mirroring what had happened with the poor laws, this report was used as the basis for what became the Nuisances, Removal, and Disease Prevention Act of 1848. The provisions that most concern us are the powers the law gave to local boards of health for the removal of trash, dung, soil, and other filth from streets. As a hardcore miasmatist, Chadwick thought that if the streets were flushed with water and cleaned, if any source of miasma was removed, then epidemic diseases like cholera would be wiped out. Unfortunately for the good people of England, he was incorrect as to the cause of epidemic disease, which led to some dreadful consequences, as we will see. We'll come back to this point next episode, but for now, let me wrap up our discussion of Chadwick with an excerpt from Health Promotion International. Chadwick's biographers have painted him as a fearless and centralizing bureaucrat, England's Prussian minister, who was ultimately defeated by rich and powerful interests. To some, he was the avenging angel of sanitation— who rooted out corruption in local authorities and the funeral industry and forged powerful coalitions between the bureaucracy and evangelical Christians determined to save the souls of the industrial proletariat. To others, he was a stern class warrior and an uncompromising monomaniac. Upon his demise, the Times trumpeted, quote, We would rather take our chances with cholera than be bullied into health by the likes of Mr. Chadwick, end quote. While Chadwick was trying to combat epidemic disease in his own way, John Snow was employing his methods to do the same. It seems like John didn't give cholera much special attention before 1848. He was busy with his anesthesia practice and writing the foundational documents of that field. Yet, he somehow found the time to solve the question nearly everyone in the world was asking. Where does cholera come from? In 1848, the world was baffled as to what caused cholera. The horrible symptoms, which included profuse, watery diarrhea, vomiting and loss of skin elasticity, were well known. But the medical community was divided as to how it spread. Was it a miasma that arose from filth like rotten food and dung heaps? Did it emanate from the sick person's mouth into the air where it was inhaled by others occupying the same room? Or was there another mode of transmission? And those are the questions we'll pick up with when we come back next time. Thank you so much for listening. And until then, take care of each other.